Well, good morning. It's uh, after a couple weeks away because of, well, but both cases because of sickness, some of it more personally felt. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you all and to uh, be able to just join together in fellowship and in worship. I'm so thankful for your prayers as myself and my family were out sick for a couple weeks. We're all doing much better, uh, so we appreciate that. appreciate the uh, uh, just the acts of service and the meals that were provided as well. Y'all are a blessing to us, so thank you. Also wanted to let you know while we were even praying for David Kemp this morning and getting an update, we actually got just another update. They, uh, they finished extubating him and he's responding to signals. So it's just neat to see very specific answers to prayer, isn't it? It's one of the reasons when we talk about prayer, when we come to passages that I try to emphasize, something that was impressed upon me years ago is to pray with specificity. Pray with specificity. How else do you know if the Lord's answering prayer? Uh, I was praying with someone this week, and it was just neat to see just simple ways the Lord answers prayer, and just that very day, text me that night, says prayer works, and just being able to see that. But if we don't pray with specificity, we don't get to rejoice with one another. We don't get to encourage one another nearly as often or nearly as much. So continue in that. Continue in those prayers as we, uh, as we just love one another and serve one another. Well, we'll be returning this morning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. You can begin finding your way to the end of chapter 16, the beginning of chapter 17. And as we turn there, I want you to consider for a moment and think about a moment, maybe it's an event, that was life-changing. It may be positive, it may be negative. Perhaps it was the birth of a child. Perhaps it was the first time you met your spouse. Maybe it was the Lord's provision in some unique way. Maybe it was rescuing you or providing and protecting you in a precarious situation. Perhaps it's a trial you went through may never wish to go through it again, but on this side of it, you're thankful and it has left an indelible mark upon you. We all have these types of experiences. We all have these types of situations in our life, whether good or bad, that have left an impression, have left a mark upon us. This morning, we're going to begin looking at an event in Jesus' ministry that left a lasting impression on three of his disciples. So much so that even near the end of his life, Peter was still talking about it, still writing about it. And even though this event took place almost 2,000 years ago, it can still and should still have a tremendous impact on our lives this morning, and not just on this morning, but for years to come. So if you've already turned there, We'll read together the very last verse of chapter 16 through verse 13 of Matthew 17. Jesus, concluding his response to his disciples, said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud spoke, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them, said, Get up, do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. His disciples asked him, Why, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? 
And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning as we've been praying and already seen one answer to prayer in uh, excavating David. We pray for his continued healing. We thank you that he's responding to some commands. Father, we continue to pray for him and his family, certainly for Cherie as she bears up under this trial. Father, we thank you for his family. We pray for his daughters and his sons-in-laws as they come alongside as they seek to encourage and to support them and the toll it's taking on them. Pray for just their strength and endurance and encouragement. Father, we thank you for this body. We thank you for those here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word together. Father, we come this morning with different trials, different difficulties. Father, we are all facing and experiencing the curse of sin. At times it feels more pronounced and more painful. So Father, we thank you that your word is the place where we find comfort and refuge. We find solace and encouragement where you have orchestrated and ordained your body to come alongside, to encourage, to support, and to uplift one another. We thank you that even in the study of a text, like the Mount of Transfiguration, we can have encouragement, we can have hope, no matter what it is that we're going through. Pray that that would come forward clearly this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks, a couple weeks here since we left off, and a couple others since we began chapter 17. So I think it's fitting that we do a little bit of a recap on where we're at. Contextually, we know where we're sitting, where we're at in the story of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus had, you may remember, been in Gentile lands. He had been in Syria, Phoenicia for quite a while, ministering there, particularly after Herod took an interest in him after the death of John the Baptist. And Jesus had returned from those Gentile lands. He had returned once again to Galilee, to Israel, and he had set foot on the western seashore. Within a few hours, perhaps a day, of his landing on shore, maybe even been the same day, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who normally absolutely hate one another. This is the equivalent of Georgia Bulldog and Georgia and Florida fans. They don't like each other. It goes deeper than that. It's religious. They absolutely hate one another. But they decide we're going to call it temporary truce. Temporary truce is that we want to stop the ministry of Jesus. Whatever it takes, we have to stop his ministry. And so they arrive together and seeking to end his ministry, they ask him a question. He responds as he normally does and closes their mouths. Going beyond that, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And then he turns around, climbs back into his boat, having just landed a few hours earlier and sails back into Galilee territory to the north of the Sea of Galilee. may remember they arrive there. And upon landing, Jesus warns his disciples about the danger of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he also told them to stop worrying about who it was that forgot the bread. Jesus and the disciples, at that time probably only the 12 apostles, rather than the larger group of 70 disciples or more, those 12 and Jesus walked approximately 25 miles north to the foot of Mount Hermon now solidly in Gentile territory. Mount Hermon at the peak of David's empire and Solomon's empire would have been part of Israel is now again Gentile territory. And it's the highest mountain around Israel, rising 9,000 feet above sea level, snow-capped most of the year. In fact, there's a ski resort on it now. It was there at at the foot of Mount Hermon that Peter made his declaration That famous declaration in Matthew 16, when asked, who am I? Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's words drew praise from Christ, 
because it was not Peter, but it was God who had revealed that to him. So Jesus affirmed his words and then drew upon the Old Testament promises and imagery of the rock of Israel, the promised rock of Israel, when he then promised to build his church and he himself would be the cornerstone. Jesus likewise promised to give to the apostles the keys of the kingdom, which you again may remember is a reference to the teaching, the teaching that would unlock entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's the gospel. So Jesus begins and continue, has been doing and is continuing to teach his disciples and to educate them, to instruct them, and to guide them. But notice it's still in the future tense. We'll give them. We know that that comes when authority is handed over at his ascension in Matthew 28. And as part of that teaching on what it is that provides entrance into the kingdom of heaven, as part of beginning to hand over those keys. Jesus there at the foot of Mount Hermon begins to instruct the apostles and let them know that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. He must be killed and rise again the third day. Peter, whether ignoring or not hearing that latter part, quickly pulls Jesus aside. He goes, tries to go from disciple to teacher. Takes Jesus a few feet away to correct him. It's always a good idea. Only to be rebuked and called an instrument of Satan. Peter went from the highs of highs to the lows of lows in that short period of time. And Jesus then speaks to all the disciples and lets them know the path of discipleship is one of self-sacrifice, not self-aggrandizement. There will be no kingdom of this world. It's one of service, of considering ourselves as dead to our own wants and our own desires. But, and it's a big but, the reward is great. Because while the Son of Man must suffer and die in Jerusalem, he will rise again, and he will come again in the glory of his Father and repay every man according to his deeds. And that's where we left off, right before the end of chapter 16. Well, Jesus then closes out this teaching in verse 28 of chapter 16 by saying a rather unique thing. It's a rather interesting statement when you really stop and think about it. Because it could have ended right there in verse 27, but instead he goes on and says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. I think this statement is made even more interesting by what follows and what we'll see. So we begin our study in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 17 this morning. Matthew and Mark both note that it was six days later that Jesus then goes up onto the mountain. Now there's been question about what mountain it is. There was a tradition that it was Mount Tabor. The problem with that is that's on the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. If we're following the story, the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, they're sitting at the foot of a mountain. And so most commentators agree that the mountain they ascended was this one right here, Mount Hermon. They began to ascend the slopes of Mount Hermon. Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. Now, if you were to look at Luke, it's worth mentioning this because you may turn to Luke 9 and look at it and you say, you'll observe that Luke says it was, instead of saying six days, he says it was about eight days later. So clearly we have a contradiction of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture is to be thrown out. Not hardly. It's these type of contradictions, or seeming contradictions, that many skeptics will point to. It's really not hard to sort out. See, Luke adds another statement. He says, it was about eight days after these sayings. And they go to say, well, what are the sayings? Well, Luke's summarizing everything that's taken place over the past few days. 
So where Luke's referring to, it's about eight days since Jesus began saying these things and then they ascended. Mark and Matthew are just pointing out it was six days after he was done saying these things that they went up. There's no real contradiction here at all. In fact, we do things like that with time today where we might, if I were to, if you went on a vacation or a trip and I asked you how long it was, some of you would include travel time, some of you wouldn't. We account time slightly differently depending on what we're, how we're relating things. Not necessarily wrong, it's just different. You've got to pay attention to the context. Context rules our interpretation. It even governs the meaning of words. You never look at a word in isolation from its context. Now to me, what's really interesting about this time reference isn't that one, two of them have six days and one have eight days. What's really interesting is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke even make reference to the time. Think about it for a second. Can you think of another time where Matthew, Mark, and Luke have said it was X days later that they then went anywhere? Please let me know if you find it, because I haven't. It's a unique statement. It's unique to this passage. And so the question becomes is why would they make that statement? Why are they calling attention to a specific set of time? It's very unique. Well, in answering that question, right away we can rule out that the significance is in the number itself. In other words, if it was some sort of illusion or metaphor based off of the number, for example, the six days of creation, well, Luke messes that up because he, he said eight days, not six. So it's nothing inherent in the number itself that is important. So what is it? Well, this time reference, it's used so that we would connect what follows to what preceded in a very close way. By using specifics, saying it wasn't just later, it was six days later, it draws our attention to what preceded and what follows. It's providing added emphasis to this connection. As helpful as the verse numbers and chapter numbers are, sometimes they create a little bit of a problem where we break up texts, at least in our thinking, that shouldn't be broken up. Sometimes we separate out in our mind, well, chapter 16 ended, okay, I put all that theology to the side, and now I get the theology that's in chapter 17. Well, it all goes together a lot of times. Chapter numbers and verse numbers are very helpful in finding where we're at and studying and referencing, but sometimes they can create that confusion. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all use this specific reference to time to get our attention and connect with what follows with what preceded. So you've got to have that in mind. Before we can get into chapter 17, the reason I recapped where we're at is because you have to have the end of chapter 16 in mind. The glorification of the Son of Man when he comes again. The promise that there are some here who will see the Son of Man in his glory. And in fact, we see the importance of this specificity with reference to the answering the question of the who are the some of those standing here who will see it. Because what does Jesus do right at the beginning of chapter 17? He takes with him three of those who are standing there. Peter, James, and his brother John. You'll often find James called out as the brother of John because there were two James. There's James the half-brother who we know became instrumental in the early church, but he was not one of the early disciples. Whereas you have James and John, the two brothers, the sons of thunder, as they were called. This is the first time we see Jesus playing favorites by calling out these three. They made up the inner circle of his disciples. He had a special affection for them. For John, he's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Peter and James, we see the significance of them over and over again. More could be said about them and the uniqueness of their relationship, but this morning, just note these three whom he takes with him. And they ascend together up the slopes of Mount Hermon until they came to a place where we read, he was transfigured before them. 
I haven't used the word transfigured this week. It's not a real common term. It's to be transformed. It's a metamorphosis. It's a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Something radically different has happened. Shocking and amazing. His appearance was transformed, transfigured. His figure was altered. He looks different. He's still Jesus, but there's something about him, a lot about him, that is different. And Matthew describes two ways that, with the appearance itself, that just stood out at him. The first is his face. It shone, he says, like the sun. And we've seen that description before, haven't we, in the Old Testament? This was a common reference to the glory of heaven coming down. What about Moses? After he had met with God on Mount Sinai, when he came down, how is his face described? It's shining. So much so that he had to veil it. Going forward, every time he would go into the tabernacle to meet with God, when he would come out, he would have to veil his face because the people were terrified. Because his face shone as one who had looked at God. However, instead of reflecting the glory of God as Moses' face did on Mount Sinai, there's something markedly different about Jesus' face. It emanates the brightness. It's not a mere reflection. It's not the moon, it's the sun. Where Jesus had concealed his glory in the incarnation, it was for this short period of time there on the slopes of Mount Hermon unveiled. And it was unveiled shining as bright as the sun. You can imagine them squinting. And if they had gotten high enough to where there was still some of that snow, we don't know what time of year exactly this would have been, but even in the summer there's a little bit of snow on the ground. It would have been glistening off of that. It would have been brilliance all around. And it struck Matthew as he records this, as Peter, James, and John observed it. In Revelation 1, we read at the beginning in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. By the way, this is John. This is the same John who had been there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice some of the similar language. Turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man. Now see, John, when he says Son of Man, that's not an accidental phrase because he was there when Jesus declared he is the Son of Man. This is one who looks like the Son of Man, but he looks different. How does he look different? He's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. He's girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair was like white, was white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His face was like burnished bronze when he has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. We've already read that this morning as well. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. This is very different, a very different description of the Son of Man than the incarnate Christ who is despised, forsaken, regarded as lowly, as one to be hated and spit upon, to be beaten when he suffered at the hands of the religious leaders. And yet this is the Son of Man who will return in all his glory. The other description that Matthew provides us of this transfiguration with Jesus' clothing. Again, if you've read much of the Old Testament, this isn't too much of a surprise. Throughout the Old Testament, the heavenly description of raiments, or that is clothing, of God and the angel of the Lord who is almost always, if not every time, a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. The raiments, the clothes are brilliant white. 
In Daniel 7, 9, we read, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His vesture was like white snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. There's a consistent description throughout Scripture of the shining brilliance of the face and the clothing of the Son of God in all his glory. Now, put yourself as best you can in the place of Peter, James, and John. When you started going up those slopes this morning with Jesus, this is not what you expected to happen. You have to be wondering what in the world is going on. He just said he had to suffer and die. I'm now looking at the glorified Son of God. But things are about to get even more strange. Because just as you're beginning to wonder what is going on, you have two more people on the mountain standing there with Jesus. You know, I wondered as I was reading this, how did Peter, James, and John know that this was Moses and Elijah? I've got a couple of ideas. We don't know for certain. I don't think they came up and introduced themselves and said, hi, Peter, James, and John, I'm Elijah, and I'm Moses. I guess it's possible, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's possible they were able to recognize them because there's a number of allusions in Scripture to the ability to recognize and understand and know who persons are in heaven somehow in the glorified bodies. That's a possibility. There's also a very simple explanation, which is as they began to talk with Jesus, they used each other's names. And so they recognized them. I think that's most likely how the disciples knew who these two persons were. But stop right there again and think. Think about how amazing this is. As soon as they recognize, first off, you just saw Jesus transfigured. You saw the veil lifted, shining brilliant. What is happening here? Two people suddenly appear with them that also look like people but don't look like people. And then they start talking to one another and you realize this is Elijah and Moses. If you were an Israelite, these are your biggest superstars. And they're talking with Jesus. They're conversing. They're discussing. Just as a parenthesis, I have to wonder, is this what it's going to be like in heaven? Well, here's Jesus. He's just talking with them. He's talking about what's to come. He's discussing it with them. Are we going to have conversations? Is it going to be like this where we converse with the Lord? Carrying on conversations. It wasn't just a worship service. It was for Peter, James, and John, who in a moment you'll see fell into a coma. But they're for Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus face to face, no longer having to be veiled, no longer having to be hidden. We need to get rid of the idea that heaven is somehow this boring, static environment. It will be filled with activity, with conversations, with industry. We're always going to be worshiping, yes, but worship is more than just singing and praying. It is that. That's an important part of it. But you see, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it, and that was worship. Our fellowship is worship. Conversations can be worshipful. Worship is found in work, it's found in living, it's found in every aspect of our lives. And we'll be doing all of these things in heaven, on the new heavens and the new earth. Now, if I'm Peter, James, and John, there's two primary questions that I think they had, I think we all have at this point. There's probably a thousand questions, but there's at least two primary ones. And these are ones that I like because I think we can actually answer them. The first is, what are they talking about? And secondly, why Moses and Elijah? Why, of all the Old Testament saints, why them? Well, Luke helps us out a little bit in answering the first question. What were they talking about? In Luke 9.31, he summarizes their entire discussion. We don't get a dialogue. We don't have a transcript. But he summarizes their discussion saying they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now, if you remember from our recap a few minutes ago, that's exactly what Jesus has been instructing the disciples on for the past several days. That he must go, he must suffer at the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. That he must die, then he must be raised again. Jesus is having the same conversation, but he's now having it with Moses and Elijah. Why? This is one of those times, knowing Greek, it's a little bit helpful. Because when he talks about the departure, do you know what word he uses? You'll know this word, and now you'll know another Greek term. You already knew it, you just didn't know you knew it. It's exodus. It's exodus. He was talking about his exodus in Jerusalem. Now let me ask, if you're talking to Moses and you hear the word exodus, what comes to mind? The exodus. That's exactly right. You see, they understood and were discussing the coming Passover and sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Not a one-time sacrifice, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they spoke of the need for this sacrifice as part of this new and greater exodus that was coming. There's a whole fun study in that that we won't get into this morning. And as they spoke about this exodus, this Passover, this sacrifice, I think they talked about how it would lead to Jesus no longer being veiled in his glory. They talked about the end of chapter 16, how he would be coming again. How he would be coming in all of his glory. Again, Jesus had been talking to his disciples about this for the past week or so. Ever since Peter had declared that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the disciples weren't getting it yet. You saw that in Peter's attempt to correct Christ. You see it in their questions as they come down the mountain. They still don't get it. They, they couldn't accept. They didn't want to accept that Jesus had to die. Even if he would rise again, they couldn't, didn't want to accept that. It can't be that way, Jesus. I have to wonder how refreshing it felt for Jesus to have this conversation with Moses and Elijah who didn't challenge him, who understood, who did not push back. And that really leads to the second question, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Jeremiah? Why not Daniel? Why not Noah? Why not Enoch? Why these two? I think there's several answers to this question. First, there are events in the ministries of Moses and Elijah that foreshadowed this event. You see, both Moses and Elijah, in a unique way, went up onto a mountain to speak with God. In Exodus 24 and Exodus 34, we find Moses going up, you're familiar with it, Mount Sinai, to speak and to meet with God, to receive the word of God. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 escaped to a mountain and spoke with God as he was strengthened in his commission to declare the word of God and to speak the word of God. But these two men spoke with God. Very unique in the Old Testament, even for the prophets. And so once again, we find them on a mountain speaking with the Son of God, the Word incarnate. Both Moses and Elijah were also concerned, their ministries were uniquely concerned with declaring and making known and revealing the Word of God. And so now again, they are speaking with this Word incarnate. In a very unique way, they are now speaking with the Word of God. They were also both shadows or types of figures that pointed to Christ. Moses in the Exodus, Elijah, the promised prophet. You see, Moses wrote and prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.18, saying that I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. It shall come about that whenever or whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
the hope, the promise, the anticipation of this great prophet was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. And that it that will be required, if you do not listen to the words of this prophet, of Jesus Christ, is your very life. Your life, your eternal well-being hangs in the balance to what you will do with the words of Christ. If you will not listen to his words, if you will not listen to the words of the very Son of God, then your life, when he returns, is forfeit. Gives all the more weight to verse 5 of Matthew 17, where the voice from heaven, God Himself, speaks and says there in verse 5 of Matthew 17, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And what of Elijah? Well, the prophet Malachi ties together Moses and Elijah. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, in Malachi 4 5 through 6. It's the end of the old. Testament in your English Bibles before you get to Matthew, so it's just a few pages to the left. There in Malachi 4, beginning in verse 4, we see Malachi say, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, that is on Mount Sinai. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Now, remember, Elijah has already died at this point. So I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. There's a final answer to the question, why Moses and Elijah? And it's especially significant. You see, Moses and Elijah represent between them the entirety of the Old Testament. Put on your thinking caps. What is the Old Testament referred to? What is Je- how does Jesus refer to the Old Testament? I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Who is the lawgiver on behalf of God? Moses. Who stood as the unique sign of the prophets? in the Old Testament. Elijah. Moses and Elijah sum up the entirety of the Old Testament. Not only that, they stand there as a representation of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures as testimony to the truth of what Christ is speaking. Again, Jesus himself refers in Matthew 22, 40, says on these Speaking of two commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, he says, depend the whole of the law and the prophets. That twofold reference to law and prophets was very common, referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. And here you have the two persons who represent the law and the prophets. So Jesus comes now as the fulfillment of of the law and the prophets. And here on the heights of Mount Hermon, he speaks with the greatest human representations of the, of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. And what is it that they are affirming? What is it that they are testifying to? What is it that they are witnessing to? That he must suffer and die and be raised again. Here you have the affirming testimony of two witnesses to everything Jesus has been teaching the disciples these past several days. All of the Old Testament is and has been pointing to this event, to the new and greater exodus, to the death of the Son of God and his being raised again the third day. We're returning to the scene in front of us. This is Amazing. It would have been a bit unnerving, but amazing nonetheless. But just when you thought it couldn't get any more bizarre, if you were to be reading Luke's account in Luke 9.32, you would find at the end of verse 3, the beginning of verse 4 of Matthew's account, right in between there in Luke 9.32, you look behind you and you see Peter, James, and John are now fast asleep. 
Again, this is an amazing scene. This is, these are your superstars that you're now witnessing talking to Jesus. And they're fast asleep. They're being overcome with sleep. What is going on here? How can you sleep at a time like this? It's like falling asleep during a national championship. It's like traveling days to the Grand Canyon only to take a, take a nap in your car and turn around and go back the other direction. I guess we can give him a little bit of grace since Daniel was overcome with great sleep when he encountered the pre-incarnate Christ and all his glories on the banks of the Tigris and Daniel 10. But I want to draw a connection here to, some, to another time. Another time when Peter, James, and John went alone with Christ. Another time where they fell asleep. You know what I'm talking about, right? Matthew 26, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, apart from the other disciples, to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. The three who are witnesses to the testimony of Elijah and Moses concerning his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, having been there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're pulled aside now. The ones who saw the witness, saw the testimony, who know this has to happen, they're pulled aside at the moment of Jesus' greatest suffering, the moment of his death, to pray with Jesus. What a unique honor and privilege. It's a great time for a nap. The three who are the witness to the testimony of Elijah and Moses fall asleep yet again. Jesus comes and wakens them. His words to them that night when he woke them before they fell back asleep were keep watching, keep praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're going to be stopping here in Matthew 17 this morning. We're going to return to this stunning scene on the heights of Mount Hermon next week. Where not only do we find Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, but we hear from God the Father as well. But before closing out our time, I want to return to the words of Jesus, and I will bring it full circle back really to the end of Matthew 16. Return to the words of Jesus to his disciples when he woke them there in Gethsemane. Because again, we find these disciples asleep. You see, while we may not be physically asleep this morning, I wonder if there are not some who need to be woken or shaken from spiritual lethargy, perhaps a spiritual slumber, daydreaming. If Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration or in the garden in the presence of Christ can drift into that same sleep or drift to sleep there in the presence of Christ how much easier is it for us to succumb to a spiritual slumber turn with me if you would to 1 Thessalonians 5 it's a little further to the right this was Paul's exhortation and encouragement to the, Ro to the Thessalonians Thessalonians, by the way, were a church that he had no, almost nothing but good things to say to them. All it was just filled with encouragement. And yet even to a church that was as strong and steady as they were, he warns them of this danger. He says to them in chapter 5, verse 4, But you, brethren, you're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but be on the alert and be sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, for the obtaining of salvation but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you also are doing. You see, we far too easily slip into habits and patterns in our lives as Christians 
that prepares for sleep, not for action. None of us would say we want to be a lackadaisical disciple of Jesus Christ, a lackadaisical Christian, a sleepy Christian. And yet too often we are just tired. Life's hard. It is. But we just want to sit back and watch others serve. Others do the heavy lifting. We're content to be consumers rather than doing the hard work of building up one another, of making ourselves uncomfortable, of doing the hard things as believers. We would rather hand someone a book and send them on their way instead of spending the time and the effort it takes to walk someone through a trial, to encourage them, to cry with them, and yes, potentially be hurt by them. There's nothing wrong with books, by the way. I love books but they're no substitute for the building up of the body of Christ that comes through personal relationships with one another. That's how Paul ended his exhortation to the Thessalonians. Encourage one another. It is really hard to encourage persons from a distance. You can do it through letters, but even Paul, when he's writing to them, says, I can't wait to be with you where I can encourage you. We've got to be with one another. We've got to be awake. If you're a believer, you've experienced a transformation in your life. You've gone through a radical change. You were once an enemy of God. You are now a child of God. You were once of the kingdom of darkness. And Satan, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not become tired. Do not become sleepy. Do not become complacent and drift off into spiritual lethargy. Engage in spiritual disciplines such as Bible study, prayer, discipleship, service, encouragement. Have persons into your homes. Visit one another. Nothing encourages me more than knowing you are spending time together apart from Sunday and organized studies. Just knowing it happens spontaneously. Structured studies and our time together on Sunday morning is wonderful, but to hear and to see the body of Christ living and serving one another, checking in on one another throughout the week, that is the sign of a healthy church. I told you I'd bring it back. To bring it back to this amazing event on the slopes of Mount Hermon, this passage, as we noted, is closely tied to the end of chapter 16. The Son of Man, Jesus, is coming again. And when he comes again, it will not be in a lowly manger. He's going to come as judge and as king. And at its simplest level, it demands two things. First, if you have not confessed your sins and expressed your spiritual neediness and poverty and prayed to Christ for forgiveness, then don't delay. You do not know how much longer you have on this earth, how much longer it will be before the glorified Lord comes again. And when he comes, if you are here on this earth, it will be too late. If you die before you do it, it will be too late. Don't wait. And if I may, I want to do something I was convicted of this week. I want to address the children. So children, I know you've been patient. You've been listening or trying to. There's a bunch of words you may not have understood. So let me ask you a question. If one of your best friends was getting ready to come over, someone you hadn't seen in a while, your absolute best friend, how would you prepare for their coming? How would you get ready for that? Would you go take a nap? Or would you clean your room? Would you start to make a list of all the things you're going to do together? Would you be looking out the window in eager anticipation, excited about when they're coming? Would you, when you see them coming, run to the door and open it open? You see, Jesus is coming again. Are you excited about his coming? Are you living excited about his coming? If you want to know more about how to be excited and how to prepare, talk to your parents. Talk to your grandparents. They want to tell you about this. 
And for us, who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, are we living with that excitement? Paul, writing to, the, to Titus, talks about living with the anticipation, the expectation there at the end of chapter 2 of Christ's return. Are we living in such a way that we expect and are looking forward to the return of the glorified Lord? All of those things about how we're to be living and acting and behaving toward one another, about being awake, becomes much easier when we live in light of expecting and anticipating the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time studying this morning and the, the excitement it should and can create within us as we, we see these glimpses of you and your glory, of what is to come, of what we will see. Father, I pray that you will help us to live with that expectation and that anticipation, to look for and long for the coming of the resurrected, glorified Christ. Let our prayer truly be, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us not be ashamed at his coming. Father, we all know there are areas in our life that would bring shame, and Lord, I pray that you will help us this week to begin putting one foot in front of the other and doing the hard work of faithfully following you, confessing sin and repenting. Pray these things in your name. Amen.